The Paunch Stevenson Show. PaunchStevenson.com. Episode 168. Wednesday, April 20th, 2011. This is The Paunch Stevenson Show. PaunchStevenson.com. Episode 168. I am Rob. You are Greg. Si, senor. And I have a couple of quick movie reviews. So I recently saw the movie starring Ed Helms. Do you know him? Yeah, from uh, the uh, the Hangover. Yeah. Film. Okay, so he is in a movie. It was released 2011, of course. Uh, it's called Cedar Rapids. And it's uh, it's him. It's it's Ed Helms. It's John C. Riley, Anne Hache. Okay. And who was the other guy? Uh, Rob Corddry's in it for a little while. Sigourney Weaver was in it. Tom Lennon was in it for a little while. Uh, this it's, this like character actor Stephen Root. Oh, Stephen Root's great. He's um, from Dodgeball and uh, Office Space. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and um, uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., the token black guy, on the on the three on the Paunch Stevenson show three point rating system. I give it a three. It is totally worth seeing this movie. That's it? No 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 description of it or anything like that? Okay, so Cedar Rapids um is a town in Iowa. Ed Helms' character works for an insurance company and they're having a convention. Like like well, you know, all the different people from the insurance companies get together and they, they give out awards. And oh what's the guy's uh Kurtwood Smith was in it too. The the old guy red from that 70s show yeah so ed helms gets there and it's like all the people are really crazy and john c Riley's all crazy and it's just like ed helms is this very calm very very super straight laced nerdy guy but then like all these other people like get him into these this trouble it's it's very funny it's it's I would say it's like a nerdy version of The Hangover, basically. Yeah. To put it very simple. It was very good. The other movie I saw was uh, Blue Valentine. And I will pull that up here. So uh, this movie actually came out, I guess, the end of 2010. Or at some point in 2010. <laughs> And it stars Michelle Williams from Dawson's Creek Ugh. and Ryan Gosling. Ugh. And even though this wasn't actually a comedy, there were quite a few humorous moments. I laughed. But it's it's like, I don't know, the, this this man and this woman, I guess teenagers really, and then she gets pregnant and then... Uh, the guy who got her pregnant's a jerk, so then she meets this other guy played by Ryan Gosling, and then they end up getting married, and it's just like basically two young dummies got married, and 
they were just dumb and now they don't know what it's it it, it I guess it's showing this relationship deteriorate over time. You know, it's kind of like some sad parts, but it's pretty good. I would say uh, if you're into that kind of thing, I'd give it a three. If you're not into that kind of thing, I would still give it a two. Mm. You know, maybe if it's on cable TV or something one day you're flipping through, yeah, it's worth checking it out. Speaking of actors... So, uh, we went to see uh, a book. We went to a book signing again. An old friend. Old friend of the program. Ted Danson. Ted Danson. Ted Danson. So, I don't know what really, you know, <sighs> motivated us to go to this thing since we already met him. He's an old friend of the show. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Episode 101. Uh, we come out for our old friends, no question. So, um, I went to the Ted Danson thing, and it was in New York at a Barnes and Noble. And he's got a new book. He called it Oceana, like his uh, his uh, action his activist group. And uh, you know, it's about the ocean and the pollution and uh, the whole whole nine yards. A lot of pictures and fishing. Um, yeah, f- overfishing. Oil drilling. Yeah. So, um, you know, Ted Danson, and um, he was there. And, you know, he gave his little speech for, I don't know, what did that go on, for like half hour? Yeah, roughly. Uh, I guess we'll play most of it. I guess we could play most of it. You know, he says some funny things, whatever, and uh, Rob uh, asked him, what kind of fed him a question. After his... um speech for about a half hour then he took questions from the audience and i realized from last time again he was on he was on the paul stevenson show episode 101 and uh (laughs) believe it or not and so one of the things he was talking about was the mercury and the fish and i noticed he didn't mention at this time so i i kind of threw him a softball and asked him about the mercury and the fish yeah and he hit it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, so you know, Ted Danson and uh, yeah, it was it was cool. You know, there weren't there actually weren't that many people there. It was probably only about forty people. So we were sitting up front, and um, well, first of all, he's he kind of spent a long time in the bathroom. <laughs> he was in there for a while. Uh, maybe he was talking to somebody. I don't know. In the bathroom. And then, well, you know, and, and, and the other thing is, it seems like a good book so far. I'm glad I bought it, but of course, at these things, they they make you buy the book. Yeah. It was like you know, almost a $40 book. And, you know, what really stinks is they, they make you pay the full price. But if you went to barnesandnoble.com, that book was $18. What? Yes. So we paid double. I know, they do it all the time at these signings. They force you to pay the full amount. And you can't buy it online. You can't buy it at another Barnes & Noble. You have to buy it there. Uh, Yeah, on Amazon, it's $17. Come on. I know, you know, before I went, I I looked, but oh well. Anyway, I don't care. I I, I bought it. I'm happy. I'm supporting a good cause. And uh, you got it personalized. I got mine personalized to Greg. 
Oh yes, that's right. I will post a picture of the autograph on our website, PawnStevenson.com. Yeah. And it is signed to Paunch from Ted Danson. Yes. Paunch. Yeah, so then, you know, we walked up, you know, got the book signed, and we attempted to take some pictures of us with him, but... uh, I mean, the pictures were fine, just he wasn't looking at us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you have to send those to me. Yeah. Um... And then we had like a really quick conversation, you know, I was like, hey, Ted, you know, we 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 saw you at that green expo in Jersey City like three years ago. We had you on our podcast. I think he remembered. I I don't think so. But he's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, That's that's really funny. We kept saying he was like, that's really funny. I, I, you know, it's a small world. And, you know, he's like, um, well, his daughters were there, too. Yeah. And then he's like, uh, yeah, you know, that's, uh, uh, I forget what we said. Oh, no. Then he goes, he goes, you know, I I thought you guys, uh, you guys kind of had a a face like, uh, you, you, you're kind of made, you know, you kind of had that look of, uh, I know this guy from somewhere look. (laughs) We're like, yeah, you're freaking Ted Danson. Obviously, we know you from somewhere. Right. Yeah, but he he was actually he was very lighthearted. He was very yeah. affable tonight. He was he was, like that is how. Of course, it would have been nice if somebody recorded our little conversation, like I told them to. <laughs> well, the stupid dummy who worked at Barnes and Noble was making it seem like you know we were just gonna be herded through there like cattle. No, I I I the reason I told you to record it was because I was going to talk to him. Next time. <sighs> next time. I'm Always sorry. next time with you. He'll be back. Don't worry. Then we're going to buy another damn book. <laughs> no, because we're going to do the trick that you came up with. <laughs> you grab a book off the shelf. You walk into there like as if you bought it. Yeah. You go in line. You have him sign it. And then, on the, you know, then we talk to him. We record it. And then on the way out, you just put the book back on the shelf. And the person who buys it, wow, Ted Danson signed my book. That's awesome. Nah. Who's Paunch? Ted Danson. Yeah, he was very... Look, you and I have waited in line for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. A couple of hours. You know, in fact, you were, you know, on the way out, you were asking me what was our our worst... Like celebrity encounter type situation. The Ackroyd thing was probably the most annoying. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of um it just being very aggravating. You know, we were drenched by the rain, first of all. And, you know, having to stand there, t- you know, we're standing there for like two hours, whatever. Yeah. And then it being a big fiasco to get a picture with him. And just being rushed through, and it was just very annoying. But, I mean, for the most part, we've been pretty successful with it. I mean, it, it, not not even necessarily that Dan Aykroyd was mean. He actually let us take a picture with him, it was, which was nice. Uh, yeah. It was just like the whole situation itself was very rushed and very, yeah. like, 
he's very cold and okay here's Dan Aykroyd okay next he's like yeah. but gotta get tonight, a shooter gotta get a shooter yeah, yeah tonight with Ted Danson he was very relaxed very friendly and warm and joking yeah. around and lighthearted. And they're they're probably lucky that there was only like 40 or 45 people there because apparently he had some media commitment afterwards or something like that. I don't know what the deal was, but supposedly he would have been there for a while. But to me, that's how these kind of events should be where yeah. the celebrity is very grateful and I humble. mean, usually it is usually, I mean, Dennis Leary was probably one of the most, how should I say, accommodating, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Leary, uh, you know, Jesse Ventura was very accommodating. Olivia Munn. Yeah. Also was, was very accommodating. Um, you know, obviously Ed Begley. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, he we was. The we best. couldn't have asked for any more from Ed Begley, other than the fact that I, I don't, I've, I've checked, and I don't think he's coming east this year. He, uh, he, he, he met his quota of carbon <laughs> footprint. I know that's what we're saying. He, he's going to have to sit in like the dark for about three months before he can, he can balance it out so he can take a plane to New Jersey or New York. Which is good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Ted Danson. Yes. Tonight, as you know, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing Ted Danson. And from his first feature film roles in The Onion Fields and Body Heat to his starring role in the television series Cheers, he's captivated audiences worldwide with his dramatic and comedic performances. He currently stars in HBO's Bored to Death and recently appeared in the critically acclaimed legal drama Damages, as well as Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. He's won two Emmys and three Golden Globes, and he joins us this evening to discuss his book, Oceana, Our Endangered Oceans and What We Can Do to Save Them. And so won't you please join me in welcoming Ted Danson. This is a first for me, needless to say. I was the kid who panicked Sunday night, you know, in college because I had not written the paper that I was supposed to write. So here I am, actually writing stuff. Uh, Anyway, so I'm very excited. I'm very thrilled. I'm going to tell you my story a little bit how I got here, but uh, this is day one of this book, and Rodale published it, and they did such an amazing job. It was co-written by, uh, by Michael Dorso, who's been nominated for s- several awards for his writing, uh, and he was astounding in this. It reflects the science of Oceana, the organization, and so what I'm saying is it was an amazing group effort, and I'm so proud to have this here today, and now I'll tell you my story. So it's not so weird that Sam Malone is talking to you about fish. <laughs> uh, I blame you. It is slightly bizarre. Um, I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. My daddy was an archaeologist, anthropologist. Um, my mother was a uh, raised us, was a housewife, and very involved with the church. And I like to think later in life became a very well, we're all spiritual beings, but a very actively participated in her spiritual life. And I bring the two up because I think when you talk about oceans, if you do not include both science 
because if you don't let science lead the way, you will do more harm trying to help the ocean than, than good if you don't let science lead. And if you don't have, realize that it's a spiritual journey as well, because all of us have to kind of rise above our uh, everyday kind of selfish uh, self-interest to to take care of the planet as a whole, because the, the ocean's more, almost more than anything, perhaps air, uh, you know, are global, truly global. You know, fish stocks go all over the world. So this is a problem that needs to be a, uh, attacked with the knowledge that we are all in this together. And to me, that's a spiritual thought. So anyway, I mentioned my parents. Um, then, uh, kind of flash forward to Cheers years. They're paying me a lot of money. I'm a little embarrassed, thrilled, but a little embarrassed. <laughs> I need to be responsible. What do I do? Uh, I also, uh, around that time, was walking, moved into a neighborhood in Santa Monica Bay. And my two daughters at that time were about eight and four years old, and we were walking along the beach, gorgeous, beautiful day, and the sign said along the beach there, beach closed, no swimming, water polluted. And it was just spectacular, gorgeous day. And to try to explain how something so beautiful could have problems that would prevent us from going swimming, I had no answer to. Uh, so that kind of set my mind going. Also, I went to a neighborhood meeting where uh, a man named Bob Sulnick, an environmental lawyer, was heading an organization called No Oil, Inc., which was trying to stop uh, Occidental Petroleum from digging about 60 oil wells right along the beach. They were going to slant drill into the bay. And uh, we started working together, liked each other's company. We defeated that attempt by Occidental and naively, uh, whimsically, probably stupidly, or not stupidly, because here I am, uh, started an organization <laughs> called American Oceans Campaign. Two of us, and then three of us, and then we hired a lobbyist. And it became this really well-respected staff of uh, ocean advocates in Washington, D.C., and Santa Monica. And my job, which is still my job to this day, and which what this book really represents is I'm the guy in front of the tent saying, thank you so much for watching. Cheers. Um, do you mind coming on in and listening to, you know, Dr. Sylvia Earle or somebody else talk about oceans, a scientist, somebody who really knows uh, the subject and works on it, you know, every day of their life. So I was a fundraiser, spokesperson, and kind of bringing people into the tent. And that's really what this book is. I'm bringing, uh, hopefully, people, more people to the table uh, and sharing with them the people I've met over this 25 years and what they think about what's going on in the oceans. That uh, organization, American Oceans Campaign, then uh, merged with a brand new organization called Oceana, which was being funded by some international foundations and Pew money, Pew grants. And it really wanted to attack on a global level these issues. Uh, we know what's going on with the oceans, and uh, we know what to, how to fix them. Uh, so what Oceana did was we want to become a campaign organization where we look at the problems and then say we can actually have an impact on policy and make things better here. Maybe not here, but here we can. So we are a campaign-driven organization that gets things done, very effective. We want to change policy, not just raise awareness. So I've been on the board of directors for about 10 years of Oceania. It's now the largest single-issue marine conservation group in the world. It's in it's in South America, it's in Santiago, Chile, it's in Belize, it's in Brussels, it's in Geneva, it's in Madrid, 
Juneau, Alaska, and up and down both coasts. Um, so I, I hung out with all these amazing scientists, and every time I needed to go out and talk, I'd get you know the rushed kind of, here's what you need to know, and I would study. So over the last 25 years, I have accumulated a fair amount of knowledge about the oceans. I am not an expert. I'm still the actor saying, come on into the tent, and let me share these scientists with you. Uh, and that's not my cover. I'll answer any question you want about oceans. And, uh, we'll see how I do. Um, okay, here's what's going on. Uh, it started off with me with oil, but actually oil is not the biggest threat uh, to our oceans, even though oil spills are disastrous and can have huge impact. Um, what's really going on with our oceans, the biggest threat is overfishing. Some, this is a bit of a splashy headline. Some scientists disagree, but the headline is you could literally overfish, fish out our oceans uh, commercially. No more fish. We'll be eating jellyfish soup in the next 60, 70 years. Whether or not you can pick a time like that and say that that's going to happen is probably not very scientific. But all of the trends, all of the science says that's the direction we're heading. We don't have to go there. This is a solvable problem. Uh, for example, when I was growing up as a kid in the 50s, there were this many shark. There are now this many. 90% of the big fish are gone that were around in the 50s. 90% of the marlin, gone. Tuna, swordfish, king mackerel, all of the big fish that we used to love to, to catch and eat, gone. 90% of them gone. In 1988, for the first time ever, world fish catch went down. And every year it's gone down with more and more boats going out to catch with very sophisticated equipment, fish. The fish catch worldwide has gone down every year. The United Nations, for the first time in history, the United Nations says that 70% of the world's fisheries are either fully or overfished. 30% of them have collapsed. And collapse means that it gets down below the 10% level. So when it does that, sometimes they don't bounce back. You know, cod has had this huge problem, trouble trying to bounce back, even though we haven't been fishing in for years. Um, if I get too fishy here, I know I can lose you. So let me take stock. Um, uh, okay, one of the reasons why this is happening is we do we, the way we're wasteful in how we do this. There are these huge bottom trawlers that trawl the size of the United States every year. And they have these huge heavy equipment that scrape along the bottom. They used to have to raise the nets because they would tear on the rocks. Now it's so sophisticated, they roll over anything. Coral reefs, rocks, nooks and crannies, all the nurseries that the little fish grow into the big fish that we like to eat. So you're turning it into a gravel pit. There are incredible pictures in this book about that happening. So you're destroying at a big clip the nurseries. At the same time, we were incredibly wasteful because these nets catch, you know, tons of fish, tons of things, but you're after just fish A. So you throw away, dead or dying, about 30% of the world's catch. Dead or dying, overboard. Not the right size. We want to come into, you know, into a harbor with a fish this big, not this big, so we'll dump them over. Or we weren't after that. It's not selling. So it's incredibly wasteful at the same time you're destroying the nurseries. Um, they're about, probably about two and a half times the amount of boats out of the water worldwide that can feasibly, uh, sustainably fish. A 
so, big problems with overfishing. The good news is this is fixable. Uh, you can go country by country and fix these. You do not have to create some huge international unwieldy body you know, that never gets anything done. You can go country to country. We've been in Belize, and they, working with that government, absolutely stopped uh, all trawling in that area because they have one of the world's second biggest reef in the world, which produced so much fish. Um, okay, let me tell you about the book. Uh, the book, at the end of every chapter, we start off with oil because of the explosion in the Gulf. Everybody was thinking about it when we were writing about it. Oh, sorry. Let me double back. You guys all right? <laughs> While we're fishing out the top, overfishing the top of the food chain, what's happening to the bottom of the food chain is things that you can't count on and didn't know about, like ocean acidification, which means carbon dioxide because we're burning so much since the Industrial Revolution, so much carbon dioxide. Filters down to the ocean. The ocean absorbs it. It keeps it out of the atmosphere, which is a good thing. But we're... It's now absorbing so much carbon dioxide that it's changing the pH balance of the water. So it's a little more acid, just a little bit, but enough so that the calcium that uh, corals use, that little sea snails and pear pods, the bottom of the food chain uses the calcium to make their shells, can't make their shells. So you're, you're threatening with these kind of unforeseen things you didn't count on, the bottom of the food chain at the same time we're fishing out the top of the food chain. So you can see where we could literally collapse the oceans if we're not careful. So the book tells you what the world needs to do about it, what you can do about it, um, how you can change your kind of everyday little patterns. Uh, you should become uh, a, a conscious consumer. And not just to save the fish. This isn't about saving fish. This is about saving uh, fishermen. It's about uh, a billion people a year in the world depend on fish for protein, so it becomes a world hunger problem if you wipe out the fish. Uh, 200 million plus make their livelihood off of fishing. It's an 80 to 100 billion dollar a year industry. Why would you do all the stupid things you're doing to, to ruin the natural resource that gives you all these jobs, all this economy, and all of this you know, nutrients for people? So um, it tells you what to do, how to do it, become conscious. I'm rambling. Hold on one second. Um, by the way, I, this is my first little stand-up bit here. Um, what else do I want to say? We're going to ask questions of me, and that'll focus me. Um, you know what? My brain just ground to halt, so this is a good time. Oh, I, I'm going to talk about the book just for a second. What I love about Rodale, what Rodale did and the designers, you can read this book. It has all the science. It's been vetted by some of the top scientists in the world. Or you can look at the pictures, which, seriously, I, that's how I absorb a lot of my information. I, get, I see things, and I get it more than, like, reading words. And so this is really like a family book. You really can uh, uh, learn at whatever pace you want to learn. It does spell it all out for you. I'm tired of talking. Let's have questions, okay? I can do career stuff, but let's stay on book for a little while, okay? Yes? Yeah. I don't really know what happened there. I th what I, my understanding was they were running away from what? 
Oh, sorry. The question was, why am I so good looking? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, the the, uh, the kind of die-off of sardines in California, the, the, the massive amounts of sardines died in Southern California, came washing onto the shore, and I don't really know the answer to that. My understanding was that they were trying to run away from a red tide, which is... Uh, where nutrients, too much, too many nutrients, either farm runoff or whatever, creates a depletion of oxygen in the water, and the fish, which need to breathe, uh, were running, panicking away from this kind of red tide, and it herded them. Um, so it was kind of an act of nature, except we all probably somehow caused the red tide. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Uh, what about all the mercury? I've been reading about that. Thank you. It also talks about that. So one of the reasons you care about this is I really want to get away from we're saving fish. We're not. I want. I love eating fish. I want to eat fish forever. I want our kids to eat fish. I want fishermen to be able to fish forever. Um, but this is a public health issue. In our country, most of the mercury comes from coal-burning plants in the Midwest or chlorine plants that use mercury in the process to make the chlorine molecule. So the mercury, the mercury escapes you know, into the atmosphere, falls into the, the rivers, the streams, the lakes, the ocean, gets there in little fish, gets in the gills. By the time you're a swordfish or you're a tuna or you're a king mackerel or a shark, you've been around long enough eating little fish that have been impacted by mercury that they are chock full of mercury to the point where some uh, killer sharks uh, uh, would be technically called a, a, a hazardous uh, dump site, literally, by, by scientific definition. It has so many heavy metals and carcinogenics in it. So, I think it was the Bush administration said one out of six, which in my mind shows you that this is serious. I, I mentioned Bush administration because then it must really be serious, <laughs> not some liberal plot. Um, I think it's now been amended to one out of ten women in the United States of childbearing years has too much mercury in their system to safely give birth to a child without the risk of neurological damage because they have so much mercury in their system, mostly from eating fish. So, Oceana, the organization, went after uh, this issue in two or three ways. We talked about it, we got it out into the press, we went to supermarkets and we said, will you please post the FDA list of what is safe for you to eat at point of purchase? And by the way, they all have it by law. So when you go to buy your fish, say, can I please see the FDA list of what's okay for me to eat? By law, they have to show it to you. Um, when you go to it, when you uh, hear something, tuna, you know, Mediterranean bluefin tuna, do not eat. First off, it's almost off the planet because it has so been fished out. $100,000 for one tuna in Japan. $100,000. That tells you that there aren't too many of them around. Um, has so much tuna, not good for you. Uh, swordfish, don't eat it, period. Uh, if you eat tuna, which was the healthy thing that we gave to our kids to be the great parents. You know, you should give them about the equivalent of a and yourself a can of uh, tuna a, a week at most. Um, so yeah, you have you should educate yourself about what's in your fish, 
that you're ordering to eat for your sake, not just to save and help the fish. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, in the back. I want to congratulate you on the boys, I think, that is the threat, the worst threat to the existence of the universe, the exception of the nuclear winter. And uh, all the data, some of which you are probably in the book that left out of the call, what you mentioned, the call reef disappearing, is now estimated in the latest scientific study that if the acidification of a Yeah. There are floating uh, states of debris yeah. that are non-biodegradable. Plastics. And, and yeah. the global uh, warming, there's no question about that, is also another factor. Yep. And when you put them all together, it's like a perfect storm of attack right. on our environment and our lives. And I want to Thank you. You bring up a really good point. The reason why you focus on fisheries at the top of the food chain and trying to make sure that they stay healthy, because some people will argue, no, we're, we're fishing right along the brink. They're, they're still coming back. But the margin of error is like this, where all of those things you just mentioned that are unexpected will have a huge impact, and all of a sudden that you just barely doing the right thing could crash an entire fishery because you need bigger margins to withstand things like ocean acidification and coral reefs and all of that stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. We're discussing the book on um, windmill short, and yet which is a great way to generate electric, but there's been so much opposition to them that how do you get around that when in reality, you know, it's a great way to go. Tell the rich people to suck it up and get over it. You know, and that's I, I, I mean. Oh, sorry. Windmills. Uh, uh, it's a good way to go, uh, but a lot of people are fighting it, basically. Uh, I, I live on Martha's Vineyard, and they're, you know, either have opened it up or thinking about or in the legal process of opening up. I think in Nantucket Sound, a wind farm, and it's getting by friends. Uh, I don't particularly want to look out and see a windmill. But I would much rather go that way than the consequences of everything we've talked about, climate change, uh, ocean acidification, uh, all the health that comes from burning too much fossil fuels, all of that stuff. I way, way uh, rather have windmills. And what's really interesting, because this country is so resistant, or part of this country is so resistant, global, you know, climate change, global warming, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of the world believes it. The rest of the world is acting on it. China's invested $300 billion in alternative energy. Germany is now the, the head of wind turbine, making wind turbines, a technology we pioneered. So while we're chatting and defending our oil-based economy, the rest of the world is coming up with new technologies that we will have to buy from them finally, and the trade deficit will become even worse. So it's just really stupid. You know, I don't care if you don't believe in it, not anyone in this room. If they don't believe in it, the rest of the world does. So get on board. And it's also a little ironic that, uh, I don't know if this is true everywhere, it may be a little bit of a generality, but basically oil wells, they go where, where there's oil, but they also go where poor people live, usually, because rich people fight them, and they keep them out of their backyard. I did that. I did that. That's how I started in California. Now rich people are going to be, you know, 
it's their their houses along the beach that are going to be taking the, the biggest hit as far as aesthetics and everything. So it's kind of ironic. Anyway. Yes? Uh, a resource for anybody that's not familiar with it. The Monterey Bay Aquarium the best. has a uh, iPod app yes. that you can download that will tell you which Yes. Yeah. No. It, it's it's brilliant. She, uh, Julie, does an amazing job there, and they are really into sustainable. They have a whole program on sustainable seafood, and it's great. You cannot recommend it high. That's the other thing. I'm proud of this book. It sends you in every direction possible for resources. You know, it's not just about Oceana the organization. It's about uh, you know websites, and we don't do that much work with plastic in the ocean. Uh, we don't quite know what to do with it, to be honest. You know, I don't, you can't clean it up. You can stop. I can't believe in California, of all places, we could not pass the law banning plastic bags. Australia did. Everywhere in that country, you cannot use plastic bags. Anyway, you're right. Thank you for that. Yes? Mr. Jackson, how does to work with the fishing industry to work for a sustainable fishing livelihood? They work very well. This is this is not about stopping saying no. This is about making suggestions to make something work better. That's another thing I love about this organization. So we work very hard with fishing councils. Now, some people will disagree with this, but uh, for example, on the West Coast, working with the fishing councils, we set aside over. Uh, sorry, worldwide, it's a million square miles of sea bottom. To uh, to bottom trawling, but that, those were fish, fishermen get it. They are coming back. It's not just laws and regulations that have collapsed the cod industry. They get that more and more boats are going out and coming back with fewer and fewer fish. I mean, clearly, if you have a, a mortgage to pay, you want to catch as many fish as you want. But they get it. They, you know, fishermen are definitely not all of them on our side. Some of the lobbyists are definitely not on our side. But a lot of fishermen are, and we work very much with fishermen. It's not about being the science geeks telling the real world what to do. It is absolutely working with fishermen. Not all of them agree with us. Yes, sorry. I'm on a roll. Very real catastrophic uh, end of the spectrum, but it's a tricky question. Uh, I wonder uh, if uh, Oceana has a position on fish farming. Yes. Um, Do y'all get that fish farming, Oceana? <laughs> I love that my team in the back went, Yes, we got it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um, they are may uh, here, here uh, carnivorous fish, tuna farms, salmon farms. By and large, really a bad thing. Uh, I, when we say this, we get people in Washington saying, um, not D.C., but state, saying that they've come up with some technology that makes it much better, and I believe that to be so. And there are, I think fish farming will someday have to be the way we go, uh, or at least we'll have to supplement a great deal. Here's the problem with salmon farming. Most of the salmon, farm salmon we get in this country comes from Chile. You have to catch three to five pounds in Chile 
three to five pounds of wild fish, grind it up, and feed it to your farm salmon to make one pound of farm salmon. Three to five pounds of wild salmon to make the one pound of salmon. So we up here are going, what's the problem with fish? I can get anything I want anytime I want. Down in the southern hemisphere, the, in the markets, the fish are going like this. They're getting smaller and fewer because I think something like one-third of what the world catches gets ground up to feed chicken, hogs farm, and fish farms instead of people, instead of other fish that will then grow. And the trouble is you come in and you wipe out a species here that this species above it like to eat, you know, and you all of a sudden you're confused on why there's a collapse in this particular fishery. In North Carolina, I believe, they, uh, they kind of wiped out the sharks in that area <coughs> from shark finning, which we can talk about, discuss them, uh, have it. Uh, and all of a sudden their, their scallop industry collapsed because the sharks eat the rays that eat the scallops. You get rid of your sharks, the rays have a field day and eat all your scallops. So there's a, you know, you have to be smart about this. And the United States is one of the best, has one of the best management systems in the world. And yet, what they're managing is that, you know, 10% has left since I was a kid in the 50s. Anybody else? I'm s yes. I'd like to um, say a bit about wind farms because I think that um, we're talking about wind farms as a big part of a solution that has to be just like you have to think about how the sharks and the rays and the, and the scallops management has to be addressed. Alternative energies have to be addressed as well. Yes, and yes. Wind farms are not the solution. They bring the whole set of problems like magnetic fields that affect everything around them, people, flora, fauna. And then in Europe, where I'm originally from, um, our people are now realizing how many mistakes have been done, because as anything that is the newest news of the day, um, and you understand you can make money on it, um, alternative energy is completed. Um, you just jump on the bandwagon and start making as much money as you can with wind farms, and uh, then you shut down what you start realizing when you find any farms. So the management of wind farms in relationship to the oceans has to be very carefully um, taken care of. And it's not just because the rich um, don't want to have the landscape right. spoiled. It's there's much more to it that needs to be addressed urgently because in Europe, the there are a lot of wind farms. We, you, there's no reason why you should, well said, thank you very much, and I was a little bit glib about the rich thing. Uh, and, uh, and you know more, way more about this subject than I do, and you, there's no reason for you to do this, but if you went to Oceana.org and said what you just said to them, just send an email, I would really appreciate it, because you're right, there is no simple answer. I know that oil is not going to, one, be around that long, and if, you know, if we're going to increase our popu world's population by 20% or whatever it is in the next 15 to 30 years or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and everyone is using more and more oil. Clearly, we have a we can't just keep the state of course. So whether wind energy brings huge problems, it, it, it's one of those things that need to be explored. But I didn't know any of what you just said. So if you would, seriously, would you mind doing that? It would be very cool. <laughs> No, but no, 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 no. We don't bring that up in the book. Yes. 
is the same logic that we have to apply to everything that we have to do in, in the eleventh hour that we already are in. I agree. So we can actually do something that is worth it. You would because serve Oceania a big deal. Made, lots of energies that are not working towards the principles that we all are trying to put. Yes. Would you do that? I will. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes. Well, you mentioned the shark finning. Yeah. And I was wondering, does Oceania do anything or, oh, yeah. or, or see any uh, uh, hope in uh, the idea of raising awareness about some of these cultural givens? Oh, we have to eat whale meat. We have to have yes. shark fin soup. The Mediterranean countries say, oh, we have to harvest tuna in the Mediterranean. Is there a way of, is there a way yes. of getting the general consciousness on, on those kinds of uh, attitudes? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's. I don't think you attack the attitudes because who are we to tell people? You know, if they were to come look at our slaughterhouses, you know, you could make a big argument. You know, anyway, uh, yes. So we attack the uh, logic of it. Sharks, uh, we kill about eighty to a hundred million shark a year, and they're the top of the food chain. And you mess things up big time if you take a you know a species out. You know, at that level. Uh, and like 70 million of it is for shark fin soup, which is a cultural thing, as you said. So in this country, what we did was we lobbied very hard to get a shark finning law in place. Get this, one person in North Carolina, one senator, I think North Carolina, South Carolina, one of the Carolinas, uh, prevented this bill from going through until he got an exception for his three shark finners in that area. The same area, by the way, that had the collapse in Moscow. Um, so the law, the, the, the rule is, rule of thumb is first treat it as a, as a fishery so you can manage it. Um, next, you have to land the entire carcass. The practice is to take the fin off, shark still living, whack, 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 throw the shark overboard. There are these horrendous pictures of sharks kind of buried nose front, nose deep into the sand because they have no, they just go straight down. So if you're going to harvest shark, first treat it as a management, and then you have to land the entire carcass, which is a different deal with a boat full of big old sharks instead of like a pile of fins. So that got passed here, and we're working on that worldwide. And that's actually getting a lot of traction. There was a question there. Yeah, that just similar, but didn't they just ban it in San Francisco? What's that? Uh, shark fin soup. Uh, yeah, right. I read that. Well done. Yeah. What's that? They banned shark fin soup in San Francisco. Well, no, in Europe, there's a lot of wind power. And, uh, say? Yep. Well, I tell you, one of the humbling experiences I had putting this book together is I, uh, I talked to Pete Slaby when I was up in Alaska, who's, I don't know, head of Shell North America. And, uh, and boy, did I feel like the little boy talking to daddy, listening to him talk about oil and how uh, alternative sources of energy are, you know, are nice, but they're kind of down here. Um, anyway, he's in the book, too. We have great sidebars from people 
uh, from surfers to fishermen to oil people to people who don't agree with us to Ed Begley Jr., who's my hero, to Leap Gustave, people like that. Anyway, thank you so, so, so much. Everyone stay in your seats. We're going to release the rows one row at a time. Once again, you can take pictures online, but please try no flash photography. Uh, Ted has some media commitments, so they can't pose for pictures, but he is going to personalize your books, and he can't uh, sign your memorabilia. The young lady in the tan jacket here would be delighted to take your name if you like your books personalized. This is a little bit of a strange tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. But well, I don't know. I've never done a book signing. <laughs> good. Okay, so can I have the first row and please uh, line up to the right of this young lady and don't forget to take your things. We so appreciate you coming. But once again, let's have a nice round of applause for Ted Danson. Of course, it would have been nice if somebody recorded our little conversation like I told them to.